everybody, thanks for listening to Scrum Under Siege. This is Jack, and that's Jeremy. So, Hi, Jack. Oh my gosh. Jeremy, where's Doug? I'll tell you what. Doug's attending an off-site somewhere in Vail, Colorado. Um, he will be back, but he kind of vanished on me. So I brought Jeremy in. Thank you for having me, Jack. I appreciate that. So what this means is you heard the banjo music at the beginning. This means this is our, our special interview series on our podcast. I'm honored. Um, thank you for coming. So anyways, this is Jeremy Mann. He is my mentor, my professional mentor. Um, and I will let him introduce himself. So take it away, Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Mann. I've been out in the field for about 10 years now as a BA. I came from an educational background, so I changed careers midlife. And this has been a very, uh, a very interesting path for me to take. But I also found after I'd been in it for a while that it was also kind of fortuitous. It, it kind of belonged with me. Yeah. Well, you're a teacher. BSAs kind of do some teaching stuff. Scrum Masters do some teaching stuff. Yeah, it's about working with people. It's funny. Um, Jeremy says he's a, a, a BSA or a BA. I consider him kind of a, a scrum lord. But I, I, I guess, you know, he, he can do both. Um, and he's got that. So that is um, Jeremy. And I brought him on this show for this podcast to talk about BSAs. And kind of the role they play in Agile, because I've seen both sides of it, where they've been very strong players on some scrum teams, and I've been on teams where they don't exist at all. Mm. So let's let's kind of talk through that a little bit. So, um, Jeremy, are you ready to be interrogated? I, I mean interviewed. Absolutely, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> okay. prepared for this. Great. Okay, so first question, right? Um, you know, in the scrum world, we hear about BSAs, we hear about BAs. You know, is there a difference? Why do we have two titles? Yeah, and I think that's a great topic to start with in the sense that uh, Scrum and Agile methodology has talked a lot about titles and roles on teams. And certainly in our community as business analysts, the BA role has been tossed about. And Mm -hmm. the BSA being the business systems analyst is in in and amongst all of that. And for me, uh, the difference has been uh, in describing these roles as the T-shaped people that we oftentimes hear about needing to have on scrum teams where they're wide on domain knowledge and Mm -hmm. deep in technical knowledge. And if I were to describe the difference, I think the BA has the longer horizontal on that where they wide within a domain and maybe not so much deep in a technical background in a specific application where the BSA may not have as much domain experience and strength as a BA would, but has deep application knowledge in the existing real-time yep. solutions. So do you see like them um, doing the same role on a team, a BSA or a BA? Or? I think it's shared. You know, Honestly, one of the, the, the transitions I see from a BA who's blue-skying a project that's not out in the real world yet is some point in time that project becomes real and it gets implemented. Yep. And that seems to me where there's a path that they can choose to stay with that application, becoming more feet on the street as it becomes developed and it gets into a life cycle, or move on to the next project. And they retain that BA kind of feel where they're ahead of the steam. Sounds like at a high level you're saying, hey, the longer a BA is on a project, they they kind of morph into a BSA. Absolutely, that's a great way to describe it. Hey, hey, look at that, woo! Um, so from here on out, let's just refer to what we're talking about as BSA. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the topic. All right. That's the topic. Um, okay, next question. What value does a BSA bring to an Agile team, Jeremy? You mentioned it a little bit, but let's dig down a little bit more. Yeah, that's great. Um, in, in fact, I would say that your Scrum team without a BSA influence is going to fail uh, more often than not. And if it not, 
there's someone on that team who's going to have to take on those responsibilities. And responsibilities mm-hmm. are really about having that feel for the wider customer needs and the solution needs and the business needs versus the technical solutions that are being implemented in every sprint. Um, When you're in the barrel of a gun, it's really easy just to see and look at your feet while you're walking down the road. Um, The BA or the BSA in this case is is taxed with keeping the wider view uh, in perspective and course correcting. Uh, They're the wise counsel sometimes when those solutions are straying off the path. Or in the case of the strain, being able to bring that knowledge back to a business stakeholder and saying, I think we've got a better solution here for you. We have more creativity coming from our team that we want you to think about. So that feels like they're really like the go-between, right? Between the team and and the product owner. Yeah. Lives in both worlds. Yeah. And another way to think of it is they're kind of the, the shepherd of context. They're there to continue to think about this in realistic, yep. real world terms versus the actual implementation of code or something to that extent. There are many organizations out there that do not have BSAs. This is true. And they're practicing Agile or Scrum or Kanban. We'll just call it Agile, right? So if that's the case, right, who is who's doing that work? That's a great, great question. On the smaller application, I think that's a shared responsibility, but you still need that one person who holds the big stick in the room to say when I need a yes or a no, who can make this call? Mm-hmm. That oftentimes lends itself well to product ownership, and that person on the team who is really re- who has the, the the accountability of the project's success. Yep. they aren't responsible for doing the work, but they're accountable to the overall success, whether it's profitability or marketing or customer satisfaction. Somebody on that team has to hold that big stick, so that when hard decisions need to be made, somebody can can be accountable for that. Feels like um, on a team that has a BSA the product owner can maybe back off a little bit more and do other things and check in with the team every now and then and whatnot. Whereas if your team doesn't have a BSA, that product owner needs needs to be there yeah. more often than, than not. And specifically on the larger projects, that product owner may be doing a lot of maintenance with their yeah. stakeholders outside of the team. And that BA is the voice of that product owner inside of the team. So for instance, when acceptance criteria is changed or adjusted on the team, that product owner shouldn't always be in those details, but the BSA can help translate that and hopefully filter some of that static outside of the yeah. team to say, this isn't important because it still is handling the initiative we're looking for. We just have a different way of solving it, and my product owner is going to back me on this. Right. Not a problem. And if the BSA is in there, then the product owner has to live in both worlds. That's exactly true. Right? And, and it's not always fun living in two worlds. We know no. that. Especially when you're dealing with ranking and priority in front of a team that's already in the details. Yep. Um, all right. What about, next question, uh, what makes a good Agile BSA? Huh. Is there such a thing? So we've talked about this uh, one-on-one before. I'm a big strengths finder kind of uh, advocate. And for me, having worked with a lot of BSAs in my past, there are these executing strengths and there's these relationship strengths that come to the table very significantly with the, with the business analysts and business system analysts. And I often segment the two of them. The ones that I look for from an executing standpoint are the accountability strengths like um, the ability to learn, the ability to be analytical, the ability to dig into details, whether it's in front of the group or it's something that they could do in research on. As far as relationships are concerned, I talked about the connectedness strength and um, the relator strength being things that help that person negotiate just 
the personalities because a lot of scrum and a lot mm -hmm. of development team work has to do with just getting relationships to coalesce. Basically what I'm hearing is a regular BSA can sit in a corner and just type out a bunch of requirements or, or, or stories or whatnot and ship them. Whereas a good agile BSA is promoting those stories, handing them off, teaching, and training, working with people. And even importantly, so not taking anything personally. Uh, the, the very mm -hmm. strong BSA on a scrum team has no ego. They're out there for the fact that they want the team to succeed. They have an initiative. They want a business to be profitable about something. How that requirement was written, that might get shot full of holes, and they can't take that personally. And that's a, that's a very big asset as a character to come onto a team and be able to kind of be bulletproof in a lot of ways. Sure, that makes sense. As an aside note, um, no ego is going to be uh, an interview that you and I will do, I think, in season two or maybe season three. I'll look forward to it. Okay. Because I know you've, you've shed your ego. I've shed my ego. This is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yep, don't tell anybody. It's, it's been shed through it. Yes, for sure. Always. Are there any, like, keys to a BSA where they've been used to waterfall forever and now they're being brought into Agile? What, what do they need to work on? And maybe you already answered this, but let's just dig well, in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and I've had that experience when I worked through business requirements documentation, which is a very waterfall-like activity yeah, to yep. do. It's that ability to bring things to 80% and not need to get it to 100% before you get reactions from people. So when we talk about Agile and Scrum kind of behaviors when it comes to requirements, uh, discovery, and, and, and elicitation, it's being able to say, I've got enough that I need to put this up on the wall and throw darts at it versus mm -hmm. going and saying, I need to perfect all of this before the team can look at it. And you find yourself solutioning in that stage. So maybe another way to describe this is getting up to the solution and being able to accept feedback yep. before you cross that line and start doing that kind of work. Because then you're architecting and you're solutioning and that's a different role. Awesome. Let's let's talk about like some BSAing stuff. Is that a term of BSAing? Is that a BSA is that a verb? It is I'm now. I'm BSAing. Uh, stories. Yeah. Okay. Your favorite format. Yeah. So uh, I'm a CBAP and my upbringing and my, my training has gotten me through a whole bunch of different formats. I prefer the user story format just because I think it speaks well to Scrum. Um, I have, however, as a consultant, backed off from using that word because it sometimes comes with baggage. Uh, the Agile with a capital A flag yep. that kind of gets way woven around in front of um, teams sometimes. So I tend to call them all just requirements, yep. uh, stories. I think that's a great way to look at it. If you're in a tool, sometimes they're called issues. And for me, I'm looking for context, which is the user story itself. I'm looking for acceptance criteria, which is speaking to the team prior to their technical solution coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And ideally that acceptance criteria is also informing all testing that would take place. Sure. So good acceptance criteria is a test. It's something contextually true that somebody can actually say at when this is done, I should be able to do this. And they're always written in the positive. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a kind of a, a, a learning I've had over my past that you can't write negative acceptance criteria because that means you're going to test the world. And that doesn't help. I want to be able to test something that's going to work. And then I also always leave a section for questions because um, stories evolve. Mm -hmm. And the point would be they're never perfect and there's, there's a lifetime that they go through before they're actually acted upon. So for me, keeping track of the questions that are coming up as they go 
is important because it tells how that solution is taking place, how it's evolving. So I may start an issue with piles of questions, just all notated out that we're ticking off one by one every time we have another conversation. And then the last piece is just making sure that testing considerations are being called out specifically. Acceptance criteria is one thing, but when you get the QA folks involved, they are going to look at this a different way. Yeah. They're going to want to break this. They're going to want to talk about the ways that the solution hasn't thought about it because they also are very BSA-like in their thinking. They look at the entire system and say, is this still going to work? Is this puzzle piece going to fit correctly? And having that there specifically called out sometimes brings out more acceptance criteria. I'm going to test it this way. So if I'm going to test it this way, you might want to add a couple more lines for this. Would you? Would that be the place where maybe you would put your negative scenarios? Absolutely. That's where they belong. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, cool. What about, oh, how do I want to say the story size, number mm -hmm. of acceptance criteria? I've, I've heard some conversations. I've been in con some conversations where... Do you, um, as you are authoring a story, I guess that's what, oh, that's a, that's what it is. I used an agile right. term. <laughs> Jeremy just gave me a look like, yes, that is a term, Jack. Don't make fun of it. Um, for artists, Jack. For yes, artists. yes, you are. You're artists. <laughs> Keep the guests happy. That's right. You're artists. Um, is there such a thing as like too little detail in a story or too much detail in a story? What's that right? Is there a right uh, border to hit? I would say from a BA's perspective, you do a little bit more than enough all the time because the stakeholders at the table who are delivering these things um, generally know what they need, yep. but they aren't always thinking, and I hate to say that, about the rest of the team members. The yep. mature team who's been around themselves will start thinking outside of their boxes, but generally they're thinking about this is what I need. So the comment that I generally hear is too much detail, believe it or not. Hmm. I don't need all of this. You're solutioning. That's some of the comments you get. But I think in looking at that same comment from a different perspective, yeah. for instance, a tester might say, you don't have enough detail yet because I the tests that are in my mind right now, they aren't on this story yet and I need those too. So I tend toward more detail than would be normally expected because I think it's easier to pull that off and potentially create different solutions because there's something that somebody could react to. The scary stories to me are the ones that come in with very little detail, yeah. meaning not even a complete sentence. It just states something that somebody heard in a hallway somewhere because that means somebody's going to pull that into a sprint and start doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And that number three story just became a 20 because somebody was given full license to do whatever they want. And that's not going to always be what the business needs. It's a cost. I think you're dead on too with the QA stuff because I used to be, when I was in my QA world for quite a while, I always wanted more. It just helped, right? Let's make sure everybody's on the same path without solutioning. I, I don't think solutioning is, I don't think if you're like right now at acceptance criteria and it says, um, make sure when you're entering the date that you have like slashes in the date, like a format. I, 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 don't, I don't really think that's solutioning. If, if that's cool and if that's what everybody wants, then let's put it in there. That's What's wrong right. with that? I think another way to look at this is also, can you start work? When that story is ready, yeah. it, it, has, it always has enough detail for a successful delivery. If that three has enough detail and you deliver that three as you've delivered all threes in the past within your sprint, then it had the amount of detail yeah. you needed. And you shouldn't go any further because, quite frankly, that's waste. Good, 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 good. Um, last question or last series of questions. Let's talk about story mapping. <clears throat> I guess some people call it journeying, story yeah. mapping, whatever you want to call that. I'm sure you have several names for it, Jeremy. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. 
But I've been in many of these and I've seen a lot of them just spiral out of control and it just all of a sudden you like, oh my God, I it's uh, 30 minutes have gone by and I don't know what we're talking about anymore. I think that's common. What are the keys to success mm. for story mapping? Yeah. So story mapping in my past has been misrepresented when it's slammed into a project management schema where it's a gated activity. Meaning my project can't start or I can't estimate or I can't charter until this story mapping activity is done. Mm -hmm. And it becomes much more formalized than it needs to be. Story mapping is supposed to start a conversation and we talk about BSA and BA work having to be very comfortable with these football shaped conversations where you start with this idea and you let dreaming happen for a little while. But at some point in time, you have to bring it back to a point to say, what are we going to try to accomplish here? In that same vein, story mapping is also supposed to tell that journey. Mm -hmm. So with the ability to come back to that over and over again, it's supposed to be a living document. That's another failure in a lot of times I've been involved with story mapping that when it's gated, it's kind of like, hey, this is done. Um, great job, everybody. Now we're going to go off to requirements gathering, roll up the story map and set it in the corner. We don't need to look at that anymore. That's not the purpose of story mapping at all. And if we specifically look about journey mapping, it's supposed to tell the customer's story. It also, for me as an analyst, gives me a reference point to come back to with the business stakeholders sure. who initially brought these things forward. That's that's a great idea. I, 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 I've always taken a lot of pride in my story maps and stuff like that, but I've never... For the most part, I've, I've rolled things up and put them in the corner. Quit looking at that corner, Jeremy. There's nothing there, nothing for you to see. That's a great, that's a great idea, though, right? Stick it on. If, if you got a good agile room, you should have room to put that somewhere on the wall. I love the fact that when it's used properly, new requirements come in through the lifetime of the application. And the first thing that happens is they grab that requirement and they walk right up to the story map and they say, this fits here. Mm -hmm. Or could this fit here? Or what if we did this differently and we went down deeper in the story map versus wider and made more steps on the story map? It's used as a reference. And it's this kind of commonality. We put things up on the wall for a reason. We've been doing this for, for, yeah. for centuries. We put things up on the wall so that groups of people can talk about them. That's what the story map is. And if anything, it's been overused and over-formalized because we see that now as a requirements management tool. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It's a way to get it out in front of everybody prior to formalizing the requirements. So at, so at the end of the day, right, if you want a successful story map that doesn't spiral out of control and take session after session after session, just, just try to keep it at a higher level. Yeah, and time box it, right? Yep. Make sure that we know this is just an afternoon we're going to spend together. It's the start of something bigger. We are not going to continue to use this activity to flush out requirements because yep. once we know what we want to do, we can use other methods. Okay. That's, that's all I have for you, my friend. It's been a pleasure, Jack. It always <laughs> is a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being my guest. For being my guest on this podcast, I'm going to bring you out to have a beer and a burger. That's lovely. Huh? That will be... I can't think of a better gift. <laughs> Do you have uh, anything you want to say as a, a goodbye? Well, thank you for doing this. Honestly, this Scrum Under Siege talks about the reality of Scrum and the fact that uh, we have a philosophy out there that a lot of people talk about but don't practice, this is an important podcast for people to hear because we are practitioners. We are in the real world and we're dealing with people every day. And this yep. is part of the challenge of this is understanding that it's an evolving thought process. It's not something that you can write a book about and just do right and pass around. <laughs> There's a lot of books out there. That's true. There are a lot of books out there. <laughs> but thank you for doing this. You awesome. and Doug both. Awesome, man. 
So um, that was my mentor. Thanks again. Uh, everybody, if you're listening to this, thanks for listening. We hope you found a lot of useful stuff in this. I, I sure did, and this is probably the third or fourth time we've had these conversations. So I always learn something with, I'm with, when I'm with this dude. Everybody, uh, thanks for listening again. Please share this. Please comment on it. Like it, whatever that means. Click like or type like. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We appreciate it, though. We appreciate you listening. Doug will be back next week from his Vail uh, journey, whatever he's doing out there. What we're going to talk about next week, I, I have no idea. We're going to have to brainstorm because I think we're done talking about metrics. So we're going to talk about something else now. What that is, we'll figure it out. What we can promise, though, is that the next podcast will be informative and slightly entertaining. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.